Hello, I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Marino in San Francisco. Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. Dan, the war in Ukraine has been going on now since February, and I have to admit, I'm prone to zone out a little bit sometimes on the day-to-day of the fighting. But I do always click on these stories about the Zaporizhia power plant. You know this nuclear power plant that's in the middle of the crossfires? Yeah, this is Europe's largest power plant. The reactor's now switched off, but there still is a risk of meltdown and people are worried, right? Like you drop a bomb on a nuclear power plant, that's obviously not good. And it's scary, right? In, In Europe, I'm obviously thousands of miles away from Ukraine here in London, but the idea of this happening, of an, a nuclear incident happening in Europe, is terrifying. Like, like the radiation and what it could do to us, to the environment. And we have an example of this. It's, it's not new. Chernobyl affected thousands and thousands of people. Do you remember Chernobyl when it happened, Gemma? I don't. I was only three years old. But the idea of it and the myth of it and the idea that there's this this kind of zone which is completely derelict, this old town with this that everyone just left at the moment of the disaster. It's just fascinating to me. And it's just this real warning of what could happen if something went wrong again. So to your point about wondering what happens after there's a nuclear incident, Gemma, Chernobyl is the place where this work goes on. All the people fled, though. So what's left is that it's turned into this like massive ecological preserve almost. There's animals coming back and there's trees and there's wolves and all this fascinating biology happening. And it's the perfect place to study how human actions, in this case, the release of a massive amount of radiation into the environment, affects the evolution of plants and animals. And this is all taking place within the Chernobyl exclusion zone. So that's where we're going to start this episode today. I mean, the first thing that I think everybody needs to have in mind is, is that Chernobyl is huge. This is Herman Orezaula. He's a biologist at the University of Oviedo in northern Spain. And in the past few years, before the war began in Ukraine, he made a number of trips to the Chernobyl exclusion zone to study the animals that live there. It's two different sites. The northern side is, is Belarusia, and the southern side is Ukraine. So both together is 4,500 square kilometers. It's larger than almost every single national park in Europe. So it's a really, really big area. So what's it like to go study animals there and study biology? Do you have to wear a hazmat suit or radiation suit? Most of the time, 90% of the time. In the same way, we walk everywhere with just nothing special. Headlamp, waiting boots, because we we went into the lakes and ponds, and and nothing else. A a dosimeter. We we always go with a dosimeter. Oh, really? The little clicky radio? Yeah, it's, it's a small device that records the level of radiation uh, every moment, but also how much you accumulate. So we, we have that information always with us, no? especially when we enter into, into the more radioactive places. It's been 36 years since the reactor at the Chernobyl power plant melted down and exploded, releasing a ton of radiation into the environment surrounding the power plant. The meltdown of the Chernobyl reactor was the single largest nuclear accident in human history. So... The area, of course, includes more radioactive places on Earth, but also big, big, big part of the area is as clean as my office or your office. Yes, in a few places, they're really highly radioactive. We work quickly, and we use one of those masks 
that we have been using for the last two years for the virus. Just because uh, a very unlikely situation in which uh, with the wind or with uh, any kind of movement on the soil, you could just get uh, one uh, tiny, tiny radioactive particle into your lungs. You, you see the commentaries uh, about Chernobyl. It looks like you need one of those really complicated masks for breathing and you have always these protection suits or whatever. Uh, it's, it's not that way. It's not the way at all. On their trips to the exclusion zone, Herman and his colleagues typically stay for two full weeks, living in a hotel that's actually inside the exclusion zone. So the amount of radiation we accumulate is half of what you get in an hospital for a mammography and uh, whatever 10% of a CT scan of your brain. And it's half of an intercontinental flight to Europe uh, uh, to, to the US, for example. So it's not nothing, but it's not a lot. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the point. This is just astonishing to me, Dan. You'd think that if you were spending two weeks in the Chernobyl exclusion zone, you'd be exposed to way more radiation than that. Well, it's because the incident happened a long time ago, and this is just kind of how like radiation works. So when you've got a radioactive piece of stuff, what it does is it's emitting bits of itself. And these can be in the form of like super low energy, big particles called alpha radiation. And that's not that dangerous, right? Like you can put a piece of paper in front of it and it'll stop it. It doesn't go through your skin. But then as you get like higher energy down through beta and then eventually gamma radiation, this is super fast, super tiny, high energy bits of material that'll like zip through your skin, tear up your cells, cause mutations. And like when you see like radiation burns, that's the kind of bad stuff that's happening there. But Chernobyl, it's happened so long ago that a lot of the dangerous radioactive material has decayed down and now isn't necessarily so dangerous unless you're in one of the like high radioactive zones of course Mm. i still don't think i'd want to go there and stay in a hotel in the exclusion zone so why was herman doing that well herman is a biologist and in particular he studies amphibians uh amphibians are like the canaries in the coal mine often when it comes to like pollution and environmental degradation because they're super sensitive. And Hermant was looking at how radiation was affecting amphibians in the exclusion zone. And in particular, he was studying a type of frog called the eastern tree frog. It's one of those uh, small frogs, green, I always say, like Kermit the frog. It's a classic (laughs) frog, green frog. When you went to go find these frogs, what was your initial plan? Were you just going to measure some radiation levels, see if there was any mutations? You know, what was the kind of mm-hmm. initial goal to try and study these frogs for? Yeah, yeah. I mean, our initial goal it was uh, 2016 was to look at uh, how much radiation they are exposed to. Mm-hmm. Uh, if we see any of those kind of really big things, uh, the tumors or <laughs> extra leg, ex- extra eye or whatever that people always think about it. But yeah, it's more genetic uh, effects or, or physiological effects or, or things like that. Usually, these frogs are pretty easy to find at night. The males make a very particular mating call that you can use to get close to them and find them in the ponds, and then they're bright green, so you just turn on the flashlight and spot them. At least that's what Herman was expecting. So it was the very first night I stayed in Chernobyl, the very first day that I entered into a pond. Actually, I was by myself. My colleagues were uh, not into the water because they don't have proper boots and whatever, so I was uh, alone in, in the ponds listening to those males calling and approaching to those males and uh, yeah, with my headlamp. And I, I didn't find any. I mean, there, there were 
calling all around me and I didn't I wasn't able to just detect one to, to see one until I realized that that green frog that I was looking for was pitch black it was in front of me when it should be but it wasn't green it was black absolutely black you go with this idea, you know, it's not that you are, in a way, open to whatever you could find it, but um, it was a kind of, that's weird, that, that, that was black. So not all eastern tree frogs are always the same bright green color. There's a little bit of variation in the species. 95% are green or 90% are green, but even here in Spain with similar species, there is always a small percentage that are a bit darker. So when you find one black, you say, okay, well... Lucky coincidence, one black, but when you find a second black, <laughs> and then you and, and then you find a, a green one, but then you realize, wow, it's, it's pretty dark green. <laughs> There's something going on. So a year later, Herman and his colleagues went back to Chernobyl to study these frogs and see what was going on with this strange coloration. The first thing they needed to do was catch some frogs, and it's pretty straightforward, actually. Just by hand. You just approach it, approach it, approach it. They are calling, they are, they are focused on, on their own business. Yeah. So, and just by hand, you just grab it and they put it on the back. They then took the frogs back to a lab run by their Ukrainian colleagues in Chernobyl City and started to run some tests. They took detailed photos to get a good sense of their exact colors. They did blood analyses and they did a genomic analyses. They also collected a bunch of what you might consider control frogs. They went to an area 50 kilometers outside of the exclusion zone that had a really similar habitat and caught a bunch of these eastern tree frogs. And they were bright green, like they were supposed to be. Okay, so you started digging into these frogs, which are not what you expected. Um, what do you find? Well, physiologically, nothing at all. I mean, we have been looking at many different parameters from uh, blood physiology markers that are linked to, uh, well, physiological problems, to kidney diseases, to, to liver diseases. We have been doing a really detailed analysis on the liver, nothing at all. So frogs from, from the really highly contaminated places look exactly the same on those parameters to the low contaminated and even the frogs we collected outside in areas that are uh, with no radioactive contamination at all. Well, hold on. There is a difference, right? They're black. So what was that, yeah, what yeah, was that yeah. difference? Yeah, they're not darker because there are more melanin on the skin. No. And, and that's the key point. In humans and many other animals, melanin blocks UV ultraviolet radiation that comes from the sun. The kind of solar radiation that can give you sunburns and eventually lead to skin cancer isn't quite the same as the ionizing radiation that comes from the irradiated material at Chernobyl. But melanin acts in both cases the same way. It absorbs the high energy particles and prevents them from damaging your cells and DNA. So we have a bunch of frogs living in a radioactive environment that are protected to this radiation more than in a normal place. Just so I understand here, Dan, the frogs in the exclusion zone were black, but they were doing okay, right? They were still making mating calls and plopping around in their ponds. They weren't in any way unhealthy. So Herman explained that they did a lot of tests and they you know, looked at their blood and their immune systems and their development as eggs and all these things. And 
they were fine. They were worried that sometimes melanin, like having extra melanin in your skin in a lot of animals can cause some stress on cells, but the frogs didn't seem to have this at all. So they were just doing all right. Well, that's good to hear. But if they were still healthy, why were they black? So this is the crux of the question, right? And it's because they were darker that they were healthy. And because they were healthy, they got darker. Hmm. Is that confusing enough for you, Gemma? Why? So we're talking evolution. Okay, Darwin. Yes, Darwin and natural selection. And something you've probably heard before, survival of the fittest. So... (laughs) Humans built this nuclear reactor. It went boom, released a ton of radiation into the environment. So natural selection got to work. In biology, fitness, as in survival of the fittest, refers to an individual that can reproduce the most. So the fittest frog was the one that had the most babies and passed on the most genes. Because the darker frogs were more resistant to radiation, and all of a sudden there was a ton of radiation in the environment, they were better at having babies. But evolution to me is like a very gradual process, but this only happened less than 40 years ago. So how did they evolve so quickly? So part of the reason is because radiation is just a really strong effect on the environment. And Herman explained how this likely happened. Imagine that at the time of the accident, say 95% of the frogs were green, and these were not resistant to radiation. But 5% were darker and had some of that black pigment, and these ones had an advantage. They were fitter because they were more resistant to radiation. Those are the ones that probably survive better, reproduce better, and they increase this percentage from whatever, 5% to to now 70-80% inside Chernobyl. It's just evolution in action in front of your eyes. Can you explain the difference there and why, like, you're not seeing frogs with three eyes and two heads, but you're seeing frogs that have an adaptation that makes them better able to survive? Yeah, of course. I mean, many of those effects that people think about radiation, or you said the three eye frogs or the, the five legs frogs, if they appear, they don't survive. So it's, it's, it's really, really difficult to find that kind of weird animal in the environment. Our frogs, they are adaptive because they, they live in a environment that is, is more or less radioactive. So you are protected with this additional melanin. You are, you are well adapted. And this kind of rapid evolution that you saw in these frogs is pretty rare in the animal kingdom, I would imagine. Yeah, it's, it's more common than we thought. In natural circumstances, probably it's not super common. But for example, as soon as, as humans are on the environment, the amount of pressure we put on the environment with Everything, it's not radiation, it's pesticides, it's noise, it's, it's changes in, in temperature. They are so extreme, so fast, that they also induce this extreme, fast evolutionary responses. I'm Mark Oppenheimer, the host of Gate Crashers, a new eight-part podcast from Tablet Studios about the hidden history of Jews and the Ivy League. We'll look at the anti-Semitic policies that were invented to keep Jews out, from quotas to admission interviews to legacy admissions, policies whose echoes still reverberate today. And we'll look at the ways that resilient Jews made these schools their own, despite those who would thwart them. You'll hear interviews with students, faculty, and alumni, bringing you stories that will blow your mind. Subscribe to Gatecrashers wherever you get your podcasts. 
Well, let's talk about frogs, Dan. Frogs clearly aren't the only animals that are still in the exclusion zone. So what do we know about other animals that are there now? Have they been able to adapt like the frogs? This is a big and complicated question. And there's a lot of research going on in Chernobyl. There's wolves and horses and all these different animals and plants that have come into this exclusion zone that is basically just a giant nature preserve now. And people are really coming to different conclusions about what radiation does to them. But regardless of whether radiation is horrible for these animals or if they're doing okay, like the frogs, an important point that Herman made was that human changes to the environment are what is the big deal here, right? It was a human-made disaster, and it was this human factor that drove the frogs to adapt and evolve at breakneck speeds. So do we know of any other examples in nature of this happening this rapidly in response to us? Yes, absolutely. There's all sorts of examples, and you definitely know of a couple of them, Gemma. You just might not realize it. So two of the most famous and probably some of the most important are, first of all, insects that are becoming resistant to pesticides. Of course. That's evolution. And then antibiotic-resistant bacteria, right? In both of these cases, there's a strong reason to evolve. Namely, humans are trying to kill you, which is going to drive some rapid evolution. I never really thought about antibacterial resistance in that way. But yeah, I guess it is just a form of evolution to what we're throwing at these little bacteria. But bacteria, insects, pests that are killing crops, these are small things and they're an annoyance to, to us humans. So I can see where we're focusing on them. Are there any other animals, though, that things that we might want to save that are actually having to evolve because of things we've done to them. Yeah. You know, researchers are always trying to figure out how plants and animals and fungi are reacting to all the things humans do to the environment. And they've found some examples of human action driving evolution. So where we're headed to next are some super polluted estuaries in North America to learn about a little fish that lives there called the killifish. They're this little uh, thumb-sized fish that's the most abundant thing with a backbone in these uh, salt marshes along the, the Atlantic coast and along the Gulf Coast. You and I wouldn't want to eat them, but pretty much everything else does. So they're this sort of middle-of-the-food-chain species. This is Andrew Whitehead. He's a professor of environmental toxicology at the University of California, Davis, in the U.S. He spent a lot of his career trying to understand how in the world killifish which live in these extremely polluted estuaries in the U.S., aren't just surviving, but are thriving. There are populations living in these radically human-altered environments, these urbanized uh, estuaries, and they live in environments that should be lethal to them, that are lethal to a normal killifish, and that are lethal to many, many other things. But remarkably, there are populations making a living in these habitats where they shouldn't be. Um, and when we bring those populations into the lab, they are remarkably resistant to the toxic effects of, of these chemicals that pollute these estuaries. And it's not a subtle thing, right? So uh, killifish from those sites are resistant to up to 8,000 times the normally lethal concentration of these chemicals. So it's not like I'm twice as tolerant as you or I'm like 10 times as tolerant. There are thousands of times more tolerant than a killifish that comes from a normal clean site. We we're talking about the Elizabeth River in Virginia, Bridgeport Harbor in Connecticut, and the New Bedford Harbor in Massachusetts. These estuaries where rivers meet with the ocean are some of the most polluted bodies of water in the U.S. 
They have been designated as Superfund sites by the Environmental Protection Agency, meaning that the federal government has stepped in to take the responsibility of cleaning them up. A lot of the things that uh, people release in the environment are released into these coastal estuaries, whether they're deliberate, for example, sewage effluent, or whether they're not deliberate as far as things that get released from industrial activities or runoff from agricultural practices or those kinds of things. Some of these places have experienced accidents of spills, and some of these estuaries just receive these continual inputs of chemicals from the nearby human activities. These chemicals include PCBs, or polychlorinated biphenols. These are used in industrial production and are a type of forever chemical, meaning they just don't ever break down in the environment. Because of this, they sit around and can get passed all the way up through the food chain and cause all sorts of health issues. These estuaries are also full of heavy metals, such as mercury, as well as a class of chemicals called PAHs, or polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, which are often formed from burning coal and gas and just the gas industry generally. People first started paying attention to how polluted these places were in the 1960s and 70s as we sort of awoke to the issues of chemicals in the environment. I wasn't alive at the time or doing science at the time, but I would think that people were pretty surprised by the levels of PCBs and mercury and other toxic chemicals that were there. And we're starting to become aware of just how much chemical it takes to kill things. And I think people were really surprised probably around the 1990s when they started putting that together that there were lethal levels of chemical in these environments, yet there still appear to be killifish that are swimming around. And it's not like uh, Blicky the fish from The Simpsons with, you know, three eyes. These are normal-looking fish with healthy population sizes. And you bring them into the lab and they do just fine. Back in the 1990s and early 2000s, researchers who were studying these killifish began to realize that killifish weren't normally able to just deal with these sorts of chemicals. These populations had actually evolved and now had traits that they passed down through their genes from generation to generation that made them resistant to pollution. And I want to stress an important point here because it's not just they evolved to be resistant to one chemical, they evolved to be resistant to a lot of different things. And that's complicated. The pollution is affecting these fish in many ways, through many different cellular pathways in their bodies, and they're doing just fine. Their bodies have basically just evolved to ignore a whole menu of toxic pollutants. So just like the frogs in Chernobyl, some fish had mutations that allowed them to survive better in these polluted, toxic environments, and they started to pass down these mutations to their offspring. And Andrew and his team could actually see this when they looked at the genomes of these killifish. And this is what they're doing today. They're working through the genomes of these killifish to figure out which exact mutations do what for which chemical and how that complex network of mutations works together. Figuring out how the killifish were able to evolve to deal with this pollution is important to help answer a bigger question here, which is why are killifish able to do this, but most other vertebrates aren't? Luck certainly has something to do with it, but there's more to the story. The thing to keep in mind when we think about evolution in radically human-altered environments is 
the environment is often changed so quickly and so radically that evolution doesn't have a chance to keep up for many, many species. So of the species that have survived, why? Uh, it's partly because they have a rapid generation time, but it's also because if you need to evolve now, then you can't wait for new mutations to arise in a population each generation or for new mutations to arrive by migration from somewhere else in the landscape. You need to play the cards you have in your hand now because your population is declining. <laughs> and so the bigger your population is, the more mutations you can harbor in that population, right? So that when the environment changes, maybe one of those mutations are going to be adaptively really, really important. Are killifish a particularly populous species, then, is the question? Yeah. So they've got big, big genetic gas tanks. They've got massive population sizes and levels of genetic diversity on par with insects, right? So imagine like a poker hand, right? If you've got 20 cards in your poker hand and your opponent has six, who's more likely to be holding a winning combination of five cards, <laughs> right? And so you can think of that as genetic diversity. If the more genetically diverse your population is, the more likely you're going to hold a winning hand of cards if the environment changes suddenly. So what are some of these lessons that you've learned from your research on killifish that can be relevant for other species that are fighting pollution, fighting toxins, fighting the rapid change and degradation of the environment? I mean, are killifish this unique super survivor or are there ways that this can be useful for other, other species? Yeah, I think of killifish as sort of these, uh, these exceptions to the rule of extinction or population decline in the face of such huge odds. And so I think a lot of people respond to the killifish story as this sort of uplifting story of like uh, evolution wins out against all odds. But I think that this is more appropriately interpreted as a cautionary story, right? We've got the species that have evolved against all odds in this radically human altered environment. Okay. And so with the goal of understanding how they did it, our goal is to understand why it's so hard for everything else. Because it tells us that for most species, evolution is not going to be the solution to pollution. Evolution is not going to solve the problems that we create. So Gemma... This point that Andrew makes that evolution is not going to be the solution for pollution or toxic waste or radiation or any of this stuff is interesting because it really highlights that the examples we've heard are the exceptions to the rule, right? Like, that's not how this is normally going to go. So they're extreme examples, right? Chernobyl, thankfully, is a pretty rare event. Um, we're hopefully going to stop some of this pollution in rivers going forward. But us humans are making enormous changes to the environment all the time. Do we know yet what that's doing to the way animals are evolving? Yeah, humans do all sorts of stuff to the environment and it's complicated and it's subtle, but it's it's on a large scale. And one of the most significant things we do is develop and build things and put cities out there on the planet and just this process of urbanization. And one person who's trying to figure out how urbanization is driving evolution in organisms is a guy by the name of Mark Johnson. 
I'm a professor of biology at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and I'm the Canada Research Chair for Urban Environmental Science. Mark's research looks at how human development, and in particular cities, influences the evolution of organisms. Think about walking into a city and you know, close your eyes for a second and imagine kind of what you hear. Imagine what you smell and open your eyes and, and what you see. And then you know, transport yourself outside of the city and close your eyes again. What do you smell? What do you hear? Now open those eyes and what do you see? Those are really different environments. When we're in the city, you know, we hear noise, a lot of noise. We smell pollution. You know, I, I remember the first time I went downtown Toronto, the stink of the sewer was just overwhelming. I had never experienced anything like that. I was like, I'm never going to live in a city. I'll be honest with you. Growing up, I hated cities. I hated cities until very recently, until we started studying them. And I realized, wow, there's amazing biology in my backyard that we don't understand. Now, these changes in the noise, the light, the pollution, the fragmentation of that landscape dramatically alters the ecology of these organisms, their abundance, their diversity, but it may also be altering their evolution. Mark and his team have studied a whole bunch of different species and looked at how they might be adapting to life in cities. One of the workhorses that Mark has been studying for years is this little plant called a white clover. You know, the humble white clover that pretty much everyone has in their lawn or at least passes on their way to work or on um, as they walk down the street. If there's a little bit of grass, there's almost certainly going to be white clover in it. One of the things that makes white clover really useful to study from an evolutionary perspective is that it produces hydrogen cyanide, a chemical, as a sort of chemical defense to prevent insects from eating it. Hydrogen cyanide is a potent chemical defense that these plants have evolved over millions of years to protect themselves from predators, herbivores. The production of hydrogen cyanide is controlled by two genes in white clovers, one gene that turns that production on and one gene that basically turns it off. Back in the 1950s, scientists noticed that clovers growing in warmer areas produced more of this hydrogen cyanide than clovers that were growing farther north. So the theory at the time was that temperature in some way controlled the production of hydrogen cyanide and clovers. Mark took this idea and applied it to cities. Cities are generally hotter than the countryside, so if this temperature idea was true, clovers growing in cities would produce more hydrogen cyanide than their counterparts growing out in the suburbs or in more rural areas. Mark went and collected a bunch of clovers in the city of Toronto and its surrounding areas, but he found that the opposite was true. Clovers growing inside the city of Toronto produced less hydrogen cyanide than clovers growing outside of the city. For the last seven years, we've been trying to explain that conundrum of, of why we see that complete opposite result. We then sampled New York and Boston, saw the exact same result. And so after a series of years, we decided to blow this experiment up and replicate it across the entire world. So we, we found 286 collaborators to work with us in 160 cities and 26 countries on all inhabited continents. And together, all of us sampled over 6,000 populations and 110,000 plants. And what we found was in about half of the cities, plants showed evidence of genetically changing in a way that was consistent with adaptation to the environment. And it looked like they adapted for different reasons in different cities. In some cities, they adapted to have less hydrogen cyanide in the city because there was fewer herbivores there. These are defenses against the herbivores. That makes sense, right? So there's more herbivores in the rural area, fewer in the city. 
So these populations genetically diverge to adapt to this difference in the herbivore community. But the story gets even a little bit more complicated here. It turns out that clovers that produce more hydrogen cyanide are also better at tolerating dry conditions. And sometimes it gets drier in cities than outside of cities. And we found that in those cases, those populations in the city evolved to actually have higher hydrogen cyanide, not because it's warmer necessarily, but because it's drier. And these chemicals actually store nitrogen for the plant, which is really important for it to be able to respond to drought when times are better. The field of research into how urbanization affects animal, plant, and fungal evolution is still in its early stages. There just hasn't been a lot of work done on it yet. So when I asked Mark whether there were any trends that were starting to emerge or big ideas or lessons that he could kind of say, urbanization does this to evolution, he wasn't ready to say that. But he did say that there are starting to be some interesting early clues emerging from this research. Jason Munchi South at Fordham University and I, a number of years ago, looked at every published study that we could find that looked at evolution in response to urbanization. And some of the general trends that we saw was that urban pollution can elevate mutation rates. This is still something we don't understand very well. There's fewer than 10 studies specifically on that topic, but it looks like they can elevate mutation rate by twice as much as the, the normal background rate. That urbanization, when it restricts the size of populations, as it does for many native species, can increase the genetic drift within those populations. Genetic drift is the process of random chance and mutations changing the frequency of certain genes and traits within a population over time. That can be good sometimes if it results in a good mutation, but also bad if it results in non-helpful mutation. And this genetic drift can be problematic in places like cities where populations are generally small and there's not a lot of genetic exchange between different groups which can actually lead to them going extinct if they start to become more inbred through time and lose a lot of their genetic variation. That fragmentation that happens in every single city restricts the movement of many species so that they become physically isolated and through time genetically isolated. Even in, in Anchorage, Alaska, you know, they've got this big highway going out west of Anchorage and they have a big fence line on both sides to prevent moose from running out onto the highway to keep the cars safe. Now, they've been able to show that in the history of those fences being up, they've actually can detect genetic divergence between the moose on the one side of the highway and the moose on the other side of the highway. Now, are they a different species? Absolutely not. They're nowhere even close to that. But we're starting to see the, the initial stages of those populations genetically diverging because of this urban infrastructure. This brings us back to the idea of genetic diversity that we were talking about earlier with regards to the killifish. The bigger the gene pool, meaning the more individuals and the more diverse the genes within those individuals are, the more likely that there's going to be a mutation hiding somewhere in there that will allow a species to adapt to a changing condition in their environment. This is very important when you want to think about how conservation can influence the designs of cities. The larger the population and the easier it is for genes to pass from individuals in one place to another, the better chance a species has of evolving in a good way. And this literally means building green corridors and having larger parks and spaces for these animals to have larger populations. When you make a green space bigger, 
or you restore the quality of a habitat, you make those populations that exist within there larger. And that means that they have more genetic diversity. And genetic diversity is essential for populations to adapt to environmental changes. So for this episode, we, we started with a conversation about a particular species of frog in Chernobyl. They reacted to the radiation, they got more melanin, rapid evolution to a single point change in the environment. Then we spoke to another researcher, Andrew Whitehead, about killifish. These are the fish that live in all these polluted estuaries. And the interesting thing was that these fish adapted to pollution generally, it seems. And then with urbanization, we're talking about like the entire ecosystem changing. It's, you know, we're almost like going up in scale of environmental change here. So what I'm left wondering is how does the entire changing ecosystem of an urban environment, how are species doing with this? I would love to know the answer to that question. That's what we're trying to figure out right now, right? That, that's the big question is life on earth has never experienced environments like cities in its 4 billion year history. The magnitude of change, the, the collection of factors that are changing and the time and space are really compressed. That's a huge challenge. Not everything's going to adapt. Some populations are going to go extinct from these cities. And we see many species that cannot persist in cities. It really now seems that today, the major driver of evolution is humans. And we do not understand this nearly well enough. And we really need to, if we're going to be able to persist uh, on this planet, as well as all the organisms that, that we love to coexist with. So Gemma, I have a question for you. Now that we've listened to this episode, do you think that part of your fascination with radiation is tied to the fact that it's like this massive, single, powerful thing that humans do to the world and not just to each other but to the environment and the plants and the buildings and the rocks it melts rocks is that where some of your interest comes from yeah because for me radiation it's about that that explosion and that damage that burning you know what it might do to everybody in the vicinity but actually you don't think about the longer term effects it's going to have on on animals and and how that might actually just cause them to evolve but to me, one of the things that we haven't even really mentioned here, but it's like looming over all of this is climate change. Yeah, climate change. If you're going to talk about ways humanity is messing with the environment, climate change is the biggest one. And how animals and plants and fungi evolve and react to this is so complicated. And it's not a given that they're going to make it. And so I think that's why a lot of good work is being done to try and see if we can figure out how this works and hopefully prevent a lot of species from going extinct because it's certainly a possibility. Okay, that is it for this episode. 
You can read an article that Herman wrote about his frogs in Chernobyl on theconversation.com. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. We've got a few people to thank for this episode. First, Claudia Lorenzo in Spain, who edited Herman's original story. And to Carmel Mothershill at McMaster University in Canada, who we also spoke to for this episode. You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, or email us at podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and The Conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com. This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced by me and Mend Marawani. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens and our theme music was by Nita Sull. Stephen Kahn is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts. I'm Gemma Ware, the show's executive producer. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening.